online broadcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent time in prison. And since that point, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against people like I used to be. And today we're going to talk about a topic that several listeners have contacted us about recently, fraud by phone. But first, Brett, you had another exciting week of travel and public speaking. And actually, I know you have another full week ahead. I think you've been home for 10 hours and your flight leaves in uh, 13 hours now, but (laughs) you're busy. And while you go to a lot of conferences and events this week, you got to go to a large well-known campus to share your story. And um, I mentioned it on our Facebook page and I called it a full circle moment for you, but I'd love for you to share a little bit about where you went and uh, what you learned. Sure. So, um, so when I started speaking and consulting, and this has been going on for almost two years now, but uh, when I started, I told my wife that I would know that I had made it, that I was finally where I wanted to be and I was doing everything I needed to do right when I was speaking at Quantico. I got the invite about two months ago to come in and speak to the Quantico CISO Academy. I went there. I actually made a road trip of it. So I drove from Birmingham, Alabama up to Quantico. It took 11 and a half hours. And I used the time to think and reflect on where I've been and where I'm going. It was a very humbling experience more than anything. Um, Hmm. I got there. I was invited by an agent and and the people at the CISO Academy. I was fortunate. I got to speak to 25 of the CISOs of the biggest companies in America. They were all attentive. We exchanged ideas. We talked, you know, chatted around, everything else like that. I got to tour the campus. got to tour Hogan's Alley. That's the uh, the city the FBI built so they can practice drills and what they call practicals and things like that. Hmm. Just an extremely humbling moment. I told the... uh, told the agent who invited me and I told him all this as well about, you know, I knew that I would make it. And, you know, mm. I'd, uh, I told him I've been speaking all over the world had spoken to all these groups and companies and everything else. And that the, the most important thing to me was speaking at Quantico that day. More and than really, TEDx, more than Greece, more than, more than anything, everything more than anything. else you've done. Yeah, and why that, is that? I mean, I think I know, but well, why, I mean, it, it's, why it's, is that for you? I went through, um, I was arrested. And <laughs> when I was arrested, the secret service gave me a job. That's yeah. what they did. That was the response on that. And what Brett Johnson did is, is as soon as they let him out of jail, he goes back to start breaking the law again, often right. from within the offices of the Secret Service. Those guys were good guys. I mean, they uh, tried to help me. They tried to get me on the right path, and I was just not ready to do that at that point. I had not hit rock bottom. <laughs> so, you know, mm. you think you're at the bottom, and you're nowhere near. You've still got a lot farther to fall, and I had not hit rock bottom at that point. And, mm. uh, I ended up breaking the law while I was there, ended up going on a cross-country crime spree and sent to prison, escaping prison, everything else. And I, when I got out finally, and after that, when I finally did turn my life around, it was um, about building trust, about uh, mm. will companies trust me? Will law enforcement trust me? You know, how will I know that I finally got to the point where I'm actually starting to become the guy who is not known just as the guy who stole money, right. but as the guy who was able to turn it around? Mm. And for me, that's a 
Bitcoin into Quantico and they want to know the information. They want to hear from this guy. And um, that says a lot. That To me, that says a lot. It was yeah. very for me. Very, very humbling. So you felt <laughs> a little bit like this was kind of you making up for the sins of the past of burning the Secret Service, but no, also... No, I don't, uh, no? I don't think I could ever make up mm-hmm. for that. For me, I made the mistakes. Those choices were mine. I have to live with them. There's no way you can ever repair the damage that was done. You can, no way you can ever fix things for the victims, that are the people that I victimized or anything else like that. The only thing I can do is make sure my choices from that point on are good choices. Right. And uh, that's what I've tried to do is that. And I think that for me being invited into Quantico... And, and not only just Quantico, but being able to uh, go in and have the FBI invite me in to speak, speak at a field office or a conference or something like that. I mean, that, that shows that they're, I'm doing something right. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm, well, I'm you are. I'm doing something right. <laughs> to me, that uh, it's very humbling. I mean, it is. For a guy, I went through decades where I was not a humble person at all. Mm. And these days, it's all about uh, Brett Johnson finding humility and understanding the only reason I'm here today is because people have given me a chance to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that and you worked really hard to stay on that path, even when it was hard, like even when there wasn't money coming in, like even when it wasn't easy, when there weren't people asking you to come speak at these big events, like you stayed the course. And I think that says a lot for your character as well. I mean, I'm going to butcher the phrase, but they say all the time (laughs) that, you know, character is what you do when nobody's looking. And I think that you did that before I came along, before Neil Farrell came along or, you know, the other people that have helped you. I think that you, you were already trying that. And the fact that the FBI recognizes that, you know, things that they don't know, like, you know, things that they need to know. And they well, you know, need to bring you in to learn is, you know, important. You know, I, I tell you one of the things I told the agent who invited me and he's giving me this tour and he's talking about, you know, he's the FBI, they bring in the best, the brightest people on the planet to become agents. And truthfully, these people that they're bringing in that are coming in to be agents, these people could be in the private sector making hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in money doing a job, mm-hmm. but they choose not to do that. They right. choose to become an agent to do good. And, you know, he's showing me all this and it's hitting. It's really making a difference with me as he's showing it. Because hmm. I told him, I'm like, uh, I told him it's a very sobering thing because, you know, I spent all those years. The only thing I did was break the law and steal money. And these guys are coming in and they're choosing not to make money. They're choosing to do good. When you see that, when that, when it really hits, for me, it was just, oh my God, you know, what have I done with my life for so many years? And I told him that. I was like, you know, I, this is what's what I'm thinking right now. You know, I've wasted all this time mm-hmm. when I could have been doing something beneficial for people instead of what I was doing. Right. And, um, you know, just a sobering moment, a very humbling moment. And, uh, you know, I kept telling him how thankful I was to be in there that time. I really appreciate them bringing me in. And uh, to me, and I told him the same thing. I, I, I used to joke about it. But there's a lot of truth, too. It turns out when you stop breaking the law, law enforcement turns into pretty nice people. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> They're not so bad. They're not bad at all. <laughs> Funny how perspective changes, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we could all learn a little bit about judging and <laughs> perspective changes these days, but that's a whole other tangent. There's only so much you can say about like specifics that were uh, talked about and the specific companies that were there. I mean, I'm fortunate to know a few, but only so much you can say like on this public forum. 
But what are a couple of things that what you took away personally is profound and sure. really important? But so beyond that, you. like what did you observe or learn or did it give you hope about, you know, what law enforcement's doing it, about yeah, security? It, it gave me a lot of hope. Um, Good. I was fortunate enough, I heard a, um, a U.S. attorney speaking and he was talking about these breaches and he made the comment that we lived, you know, three or four years ago, a company could be breached and that company could hide the breach. They could successfully hide the breach. But we are in a time and age now where it is impossible for a company to hide that they have been breached. You know, you've got insurance companies, you've got <laughs> law enforcement, you've got the, the people they're associated with, the employees, everything else. It's impossible to do that now. Right. Now th those things are public. And yeah. he made the point, he was talking, and it, it became evident. You know, when you hear the agents talk and you hear the attorney, talk, the, the prosecutor talk and everything else, it becomes pretty evident at that point. They're not interested they're not, they're really not. And I've heard it not just at Quantico, but at different field offices and from different agents. They're not interested in really prosecuting the company that's the victim. The right. company that is breached is a victim. They're there to help. Mm -hmm. They're there to find out what information they can and to try to find the bad guys and put the bad guys in prison. That's their job. Right. And sometimes companies are, you know, afraid because of the press or whatever. But right. like we say with consumer victims and, you know, merchants from a credit card victim standpoint, it's not if but when. And, you know, you know that one of my consulting clients had one of their websites uh, taken over uh, this week right. by Islamic terrorism or terrorists, I believe, or at least claiming to be. And it didn't make a lot of sense for what the company does. But they were wanting to get a message out to get American troops out of specific countries. And sure. they took over this website and no data was exposed from what we can tell. But yeah, even though, you know, you think, oh, not many people may not be looking at the website on a, this particular day afternoon or late at night or whatever. I mean, I had people contacting me because they know I worked with them before. Sure. I bring that up only because it can happen to anyone. And I think that, yeah, you know, if you use it as a learning opportunity, but also you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not bringing in law enforcement because law enforcement has special tools to be able to diagnose who did it and whatever, but then they can also prosecute those people Absolutely. and work towards that. Now, if they're overseas, it's a little more challenging, but they might have a file on those people. You know, they might be involved in more dangerous stuff. It can add counts to their indictment or whatever it is, but it also helps for data, right? Like being able to track if they don't know how many websites were breached, they can't provide information out to the public or to companies to learn from that either. And I think it's great that they bring in CISOs. And I just want to point out in case anyone doesn't know what a CISO is, <laughs> the <laughs> chief information security officer. So they're the ones that are in charge of um, at large companies and small companies too, keeping those websites safe from breaches and attacks and hacks, taking over or ransomware, whatever the particular crime may be. They're really at the front gate. They're you know in charge of the people who are protecting the website from bad actors Absolutely. from a security standpoint. So we talk all the time, security is trying to protect the information. Fraud is trying to protect your company from having stolen credit cards used on your site. That's it. And I, there was another CISO there from a company who had been a victim of a, of a fairly large breach. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about uh, when they knew they were breached, they decided as a company to keep it hidden from a lot of the other employees in that company, a lot mm. of the other departments and everything else. And what he was talking about, and I talk a lot in my presentations now about team building, about getting people from the different departments and building one single team that can talk mm. about security and fraud. Yes. I've so worked with a few companies to create fraud task force, right. as, as we right. call them, or fraud squads. 
<laughs> the, the fraud squad, exactly. So what he so said one was, of my is, clients, as I had to call it. <laughs> right. He made the point that they chose not to do that. They compartmentalized everything and they did not share the information of the breach outside of that one specific department and just the people who needed to know. And he made the comment that he wished they hadn't done that hmm. because it turns out that there was a lot of people outside of those departments who could have helped with that breach about yeah. PR, about handling it, what to do about it, circumventing it, things like that. And that really hit home with me is mm -hmm. in that the importance of building that type of team. Because oh, yeah. when you are hit and you're going to be hit, I mean, the only reason you've not been hit yet as a person or a company is because you're basically in the worst lottery in the world. <laughs> and that lottery is that thankfully they've not drawn your number yet. Right. <laughs> but when they did. Right. But your information's probably out there. <laughs> right. Right. So it, he made that point and that really hit home as well. And that, mm -hmm. that's what I walked away with is, you know, all these people sitting there doing good mm -hmm. when they could be making a lot more money just, right. just to do the right thing. Well, I would argue that the help. CISOs are probably doing all right. Oh, they're doing fine. Yeah, they're doing <laughs> Especially fine. for still, some of those really big companies. <laughs> you know, the, the people that I was talking to in there, I mean, sure, they're, the just, they're making money. They're doing well. But at the same time, they really care about right. what they're doing. And that yeah. makes all the difference in the world. It does. Absolutely. I mean, I just on that point, when I was managing the fraud team, I was getting all these chargebacks for something that didn't make any sense. And I kind of put it in the back of my mind. I was like, huh, I don't know why that is. I'll just keep finding them. But this is weird. And it was a fraud that I didn't understand why why it was coming in and why they were purchasing this on stolen credit cards right. and the specific service or product. And I go to the bathroom, like not right after I said this chargebacks, but like another day I go to the bathroom and I see a girl from marketing and she's like, Hey, I'm seeing some weird activity on one of the channels that I monitor. Like, would this be impacting you? And as we talk about it, sure enough, that was exactly how that fraud was coming in. <laughs> and so I was able to work with her to like shut that down and be more selective about what affiliate partners we had so that that fraud wasn't coming in. I never would have known that had right. she not mentioned it. So I absolutely agree. Having task force that meets like once every two weeks or a month, depending on your company, with one representative from every part of your business, because it helps them care about fraud too. It helps them think about it when they're creating new marketing material like, oh, this might attract the wrong, the wrong kind of, you know, this might attract fraudsters or you know, where are we going to market this or whatever it is or, you know, customer service. Oh, we got this phone call and I didn't know that fraud even existed. Like just explaining to people what fraud is and what, how it hurts the company and the impact it is and then what it looks like as well as getting them on board for the future is just so important. I've seen it really work a lot, especially for two of the largest QSRs, um, probably of the top five or 10 quick service restaurants in the U.S., they've really found that to be successful. So go. really good learning takeaway there. And, you know, you also mentioned before we recorded that there was only one other main speaker at this event. I mean, no, you no, followed no, no. I, him I, the I, next I, day. Sorry, oh, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean Maybe I got it wrong. It was, uh, <laughs> the day before, the FBI director, Christopher Ray had been exactly at the same podium that I was speaking, oh, speaking okay. to those CISOs. But uh, right. they had different speakers and things coming in. Oh, okay. Just, uh, I think you I got it confused that, with another conference that you're speaking at where yeah, you're the yeah, only speaker. So <laughs> That is the Greece, uh, not the Greece, but the Turkey, Turkey conference in yes. December. They are bringing me in for Shield 18. I am the only speaker, and I guess that I am, uh, they're pulling out all the stops for me. They've invited me to stay an extra day to tour S Istanbul. Oh, oh wow. Um, I know you're going first class. I really uh, think that, you know, you need to push a live podcast recording. I'm just saying. I'm kidding. <laughs>
<laughs> but good. I'm glad, as they should. But yeah, I got that mixed up. But I mean, what an honor. I mean, you've spoken at a conference where, in the past, where, oh my gosh, what's the guy's name from WikiLeaks? Oh, um, uh, Julia Assange. Yes. Man. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he spoke obviously via telecast, not in person because right. he's holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy. Yeah. So, I mean, you've spoken with him. Now you've spoken at the same podium as Christopher Ray. I mean, yeah, I think it's safe to say you made it, Brett. Or you're making well, I'm, it I'm, for sure. I'm very fortunate. I am. I'm very <laughs> fortunate. It's just, uh, I don't know if I'll ever make it. I'm just, uh, I know I'm not, that I'm doing, you know, I'm on the right path. <laughs> that's, right. I guess. Yes. That's the way yes. <laughs> One foot in front of the other. But I, I think that that has been affirmed. So I suppose we should probably dive into the topic of the day, but I really appreciate you sharing that experience and how cool is it that, you know, everyone else, myself included, gets to learn from you as well without having to pay your first class ticket. (laughs) (laughs) So phone fraud, this has really come up in several different ways recently from both consumers and merchants. So we're going to talk about both on this podcast. So for consumers, it comes in the form of, we call them scam phone calls trying to obtain personal information like your credit card or debit card numbers, your bank account information, et cetera, even if it's just like your phone number, they're trying to get something specific or they're trying to convince you to wire transfer money. And for businesses, phone fraud occurs really in your call centers to either gain more information about your company or a specific person or even why their order was canceled so they can beat the fraud detection system next time or and to commit a crime like phishing we talked about last week, basically, or to place orders um, over the phone with stolen credit cards. So we're going to try to dive into both. I think we'll do a good job of that. So Brett, according to a recent study by your friends at AARP, and I don't say that as an old joke, I actually say that because you were featured in their bulletin for September and they made a few videos about you and you've been on their podcast as well. So I'm not making an age joke, even though you are 10 years older than me. Um, <laughs> just throwing that. I had a birthday recently. I'm feeling old. So, you know, it helps me to know that. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I used to get my wife about getting the AARP card. And uh, now after working with these guys and everything, I'm like, hey, you know what? You're looking Send forward me one to it now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but they do a lot of great studies as well. And one of them was that they said in 2017, the number of scam calls increased by 60%. And they predict that by 2019, which isn't that far away, over 50% of all calls that you receive on your cell phone will be scams or fraud. I would say I'm at that point now almost. Um, if I didn't use my phone for business, it'd probably be like 80% fraud. <laughs> I mean, partially, I think that's because we text a lot more than we call. But why do you think that scam calls are growing so much so fast? Sure. And just think about that number for a second. So by 2019, next year, 50% of all mobile phone calls will be scam or fraud related. So half. Well, and they even actually went on to say that by 2022, it'll be 80%. 80, right, 80%. Yeah. So that means that every time your phone rings, every time you get a text message, the chances of it being, overall, the chances of it being fraud or scam by next year is 50%. By, by <laughs> a couple years later, it's 80%. So <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, why is that going on? Traditional wisdom, and I agree with some of it, traditional wisdom says technology. It says that uh, people fall for it, consumers fall for that type of stuff. If they didn't fall for it, it would go away. And, well, and, and that they're able to do robocalls a lot right. easier and cheaper, right? And that right. they Absolutely. have like call centers in other countries that are just dedicated to this and to those people they think it's a job you know it's right 
And you have to consider, what you have to do is you have to sit back and you have to say, okay, how does cybercrime itself work? And I've talked about this a lot. Cybercrime today, cybercrime spans, it crosses borders and boundaries. The, the idea of, of organized crime just taking place in one country is over. That doesn't happen anymore. And that's why these robocalls go on. I mean, you have an attacker or a company that's set up maybe in the United States. They want leads or what have you. They'll hire an Indian call service over in India or some other country that does the robocalls, that does that type of just calling of blanket phone calls over and over and over again. So you have that type of stuff that goes on frequently on that. The problem is, is that when you look at technology, technology, this is all my opinion, but I think it's a good opinion. <laughs> so technology provides a base level of trust to people. What I mean by that is we trust, we inherently trust the technology that's given to us. We buy a phone, we trust that that phone is secure. We think that uh, it's a good device as long as we use it properly, we won't be compromised. You know, the companies aren't going to, to whatever company the phone is provided by, they're not going to, to spy on us. <laughs> they're not going to monitor our activities or, or what we do. And we kind of trust that. Now, in the back of our heads someplace, you know, we're reading the news stories that say, well, you know what? This company is monitoring all your activities. They're collecting all your data. They're targeting you for advertisements. Well, it's not just companies that do that. It's criminals that do that. If you're a criminal, Technology provides a base level of secure, uh, of trust, just a base level. It gets you, think of it as it gets the criminal to the door and it gets the, the victim to open the door. You mean What's trust that? with the consumer or the victim? Right. There's some trust there because they're calling them or exactly. it gets them, right, okay. So think of it like this. So <laughs> if I could pick up a phone as a criminal, if I pick up a phone, I spoof a phone number. Say I spoof the phone number from the Social Security Administration, which what I mean by that is I would call a victim, a person, and on their caller ID, it would show that I was calling from the Social Security office. And I call in and I say, hey, Bob, this is Dave Matthews over here at the Social Security Administration. Look, we've got a problem with your Social Security number. It looks like we've got some chicken ranches up in Montana. Some of these people are using your Social Security number. We think they're illegal aliens. We're not sure, but we do know that your number's being used up there by at least five different companies. So what we need you to do is we need you to verify your Social Security number. If you could do that for us. Now, what is it again? Will the guy give you the number at that point? A lot of the times, yes. Now, what happens is that base level of trust happens because I call in and I spoof the phone number of the Social Security Administration. Okay, that's just a base level. That's the lowest level of trust you can get. If I were to go in immediately and start asking for information, that victim may not give me information. I have to build up a rapport with the victim and build up that trust factor. So right. layers upon layers of trust so that the victim then trusts me enough to give me information. Well, it seems that, like there's either like one, there's two different ways of doing it, right? Either building trust and being friendly or scaring the crap out of them with fear and a sense of urgency, right? Which, Those are the right. two different ways of, of even that, successfully even, doing a phone scam. Sure. But even if you scare them, you're building trust because why? You scare them to mm -hmm. death, you present them with a problem, but you're but they have the solution. the solution. Right. Uh, you can fix the problem right now. How do you do that? Give me what is your social security number? We'll take care of it right now. Wow. I hadn't thought of that. Okay. I hadn't thought of that, like that being trust as well, but you're right. And that's, that's a lot of the reason. So technology does that. The other thing is, is you have to consider how many players, how many attackers, how many criminals there are online today. When, when I ran Shadow Crew, we ended with 4,000 members. Last year, Alpha Bay was the large criminal network on the planet. It ended. It was shut down. It had 240,000 members. Those numbers continue to increase. That was just for one website. One website. So you've got all these people in here. Most of these people are not highly skilled people. 
they're good social engineers, so they don't really know how to brute force their way in or do a SQL Server attack, you know, these high-tech uh, hacking operations. They can't really do that, but they can use a phone. You get that going on. You get, um, there's all types of things that, that happen because, or that kind of guide people or criminals toward using the phone as a channel. You know, online security, let's be honest, online security is getting pretty good. A new criminal going in trying to compromise a site or something, it gets difficult. But what right. he can do is he doesn't have to worry about Internet security. He can simply pick up a phone, talk to somebody, and talk them out of access, information, data, what have you. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, that makes complete sense. So that kind of explains why it's growing so much. And, I mean, also I think it's because it works, right? Like oh, it if, does. if no one fell for it, they wouldn't happen. Like they'd go away. <laughs> yeah, well, think of it like this. I mean... So phone scams are a form of phishing. It's called vishing, voice phishing, vishing. Mm. So how successful are phishing attacks? Well, we know we know that 92% of every single breach begins with a phishing attack. We know that spear phishing, which that's a form, vishing, voice phishing is a form of spear phishing. We know that spear phishing is how successful? 86% successful. So wow. it works. Mm -hmm. It works. And that's why criminals go to what works. Right. Because people fall for it. I mean, and, and that's not to fault the victims. It's because these guys are really good at what they do. They're good at, we call it on the professional side, social engineering. They're basically, right. you know, engineering social conversations and um, social interactions. Absolutely. It's got nothing to do. I've heard a few people say, well, you know, the, stupid people fall for it. It's ignorance. It's They shouldn't be falling for that. They should be smarter than that. I'm going to tell you right now, it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with how smart someone is. I agree. You're, doing, you're dealing with a social engineer who knows what it takes to manipulate human psychology. He understands human psychology enough to get someone to give up access, information, data, whatever, that that person usually wouldn't give up. Right. Well, and you and I both know of a lot of cases where really senior people at big companies have fallen for this. So it's definitely not something about intellect. I do know right. that some of the groups that are most at risk are, you know, senior citizens because they're really a trusting generation and not too skilled on technology. I remember my grandmother once told me that she was clicking on ads on her newspaper's website because she thought that they were endorsed by the newspaper. Right. But chances are the newspaper has no idea who's advertising on their site because they use a third party marketing company. But she was clicking on stuff that may or may not have been legitimate because she thought, oh, well, I trust my local newspaper. So I'll trust the people that they trust. And absolutely. So, you know, that explains, you know, why the AARP ha does put so much effort into trying to get the word out. And thank goodness that they do. Also, I know immigrant communities have been victims. When I ran a fraud department, there was a scam going around. I mean, I believe Vietnamese communities with immigrants and the person was speaking their language and was one of them. And so <laughs> they're in a country that they don't know a lot of people and they're really trusting of people that are like them and from their home country. And they completely got their identity stolen and their credit was just obliterated. But that doesn't mean that those are the only people that are targeted. I mean, I get calls like this all the time. You know, they're not really doing a lot of it. Some people are doing a lot of research, but. Not everyone. You know, they're a lot of it, a lot of it is, is the same as a phishing email. It's just a blanket right. set of calls that are sent out to see who clicks or who responds. Right. Um, this is not my idea. This is something that was mentioned to me. I agree with it after I was told this. But when someone is phished, especially through calling, so if a victim is called and compromised or victimized over the phone, that really, I mean, really at that point, 
the attacker, the criminal, is purposefully victimizing that person. See, when you do it online, criminals are able to say, well, you know, it's data that I'm compromising. They use that, mm. that, that, that buffer zone to make to believe that they're not actually taking advantage of a person. But when you're actually picking up the phone and doing that, you're targeting one specific person and you're victimizing that specific person. And you have to know that as a criminal. I, the guy was talking, I was at Northern Trust and they were talking about this and I was like, you know, you're absolutely right. I've done a lot of spoofed calls, a lot of that social engineering like that. And there is a difference. There's a difference between doing it online and picking mm. up the phone and actually talking to somebody because you're actively victimizing that person right there. Whereas you're online, you've got that buffer zone. It's just numbers and data. Yeah, you're able to tell yourself, it's oh, not, it's not a person. It's just a Right, it's like taking away humanity, right? Like right. You know, when you kind of take away the idea that there's a human that's being impacted, right. then it's not a big deal. And that's that was the other point that was made too. And I, they made the point too is when people are done that way, when a criminal does someone like that over the phone, the victim really feels that at that point. I mean, that really yeah. puts them that they were taken advantage of by someone that was actually talking to them and to talk them out of their money or information or what have you. There's a lot of truth to that because, I mean, I've talked to a lot of victims and um, it seems like the ones who've been targeted over the phone are the ones that feel most victimized and most violated. Right. It's similar to if, like, your car is rifled through versus your house, like, criminal, right? Because your car, you're not in your car. It's not as, maybe the car isn't the best example, but maybe it's, like, your yard versus inside your house or whatever. But it's more personal, and, you know, you interacted with that person rather than just, oh, I, I clicked on the wrong thing. Right. I can see that. So for consumer scam calls, it seems like we can kind of put them into two different buckets. Uh, number one is the fraudsters looking or vishing, as you said, for more information to complete fraud in another way, usually online. So, for instance, you have, you know, if you're a criminal, you have all of their information that you need to set up a credit card in someone's name but you don't have their social security number um, or the name of their first pet or whatever, or their email address or whatever you need. This is something in this, you know, this bucket of fraud, of scam calls that I know you know something about. And you kind of referenced, you know, one example, but because you did make some of these calls uh, in your previous life, um, I know you shared one example of how you did this on another episode, something about a chicken farm and <laughs> in Idaho. <laughs> But can you give you know another example of something that you'd do that, that would work? Sure, sure. I mean, a lot of it's very simple stuff. So just spoofing the phone there provi provides a very nice base level of trust if you're trying to victimize someone on the phone. So you call in, say I'm calling in, and it shows the phone number of the state police that are in whatever state the victim is in. And I'll call up and I'll say, hey, my name is Detective James T. Lasky. I'm up here at the Kentucky State Police. Looks like we've got a warrant for your arrest. We would appreciate if you come on in and talk to us about that. So what are they going to do at that point? They're going to say, what? Warrant? What are you talking about? Your name is this, right? And they'll say yes, and then you'll give them some social security number that's not theirs. Ah, <laughs> and they're like, no, no, that one's not mine. This is mine, right? Is that what mine? you're hoping so, so for? What's your social security? Right. What's your social security number again? And you were born in what year? Oh, jeez. Oh, see, we've oh, we've you're got too a good at this. Thomas that's born in 1968. So you're born in 72. Ah, okay. So your mom's not Brenda Napier. Oh, no, my mom's Canada. <laughs> All right. Well, look, look. Uh, 
I may have to call you back here in just about an hour or so just to make sure that we've got the right warrant on this person just to confirm it's not you. But uh, hold tight. It looks like it will be able to get this straightened out. Yeah, let me run this through records, run it through the uh, court system. We'll see what's going on. You hang up. You don't want to sow paranoia or distrust, so you may have to follow that up with a phone call in an hour saying, look, looks like everything's all right. It was not you. We appreciate your helping us. We'll make sure we get the right guy, and we'll make sure this is corrected in the files as well. Huh. Have a good day. So that's one. You can call in with the uh, Social Security Administration. We've got some uh, some tax discrepancies here. Are you Brandon Napier? And they'll say yes. Okay, are you living at uh, 1414 Mockingbird? Yes, I am. Okay, and your social ends with uh, 5841. No, that's not my social. Oh, well, okay, what's going on here? So uh, what's, what's the last four of your social? Now, the thing is, is that people born before 2011, if you have the last four of the social, if you know enough about the person, you can generate the first five pretty easily. Oh, um, my gosh. So really? the only thing you need a lot of the time is the last four on that. Well, but people, that's kind of terrifying because that's like last four is something that gets asked all the time, right, for time. verification. I mean, I get asked that by my bank, by, you know, my phone company, whoever it is. And so that I didn't realize that that's kind of scary. <laughs> right. So if you know what state, uh, what area of the state they're born in the year. Oh, okay. So you do need to know where they were born, but right. still, okay. And you can figure that out pretty quickly at that point. Wow. Wow. Well, you've just scared me and reminded <laughs> me why I'm so glad you're on this side, but. But that's why that's the problem is that these attackers, and I've mentioned this time and time again on these other podcasts we've done, these attackers, it doesn't matter if they're skilled or not. If they're good social engineers, they can get the access. Even if they're extremely skilled with breaking into systems, a lot of the times they don't have to rely on the skill. They right. simply need to rely on a good social engineering technique to get access or to get information. Wow. Yikes. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I told a story in another episode about how I had had my card compromised and got it shut down quickly, but then uh, they called back and they had some of my information, but they wanted, you know, my bank account number because they knew my credit card number had changed. So they spoofed my bank phone number and it looked like it was coming from my bank's customer service phone number and I almost fell for it but there were some some red flags that I was like and I know I went into those red flags in another call so or another episode so I'm not gonna go back into that because we have a little more to cover today the other kind of spam calls focusing or targeting consumers is really they're looking for money right so they're not looking for information to then commit another crime they want money uh, transferred to them, wired, well, however it works. These mo uh, phone apps now with uh, money transferring makes it really handy for me in you know my personal life to pay a friend back or you know pay my acupuncturist if I didn't bring my checkbook, whatever. But they are also very handy by fraudsters too. Like, oh, you don't want to go down to Western Union? Okay, well then just do you have this app? Uh, just wire it, you know, transfer it to me that way. So on the surface, this sounds like something that no one would fall for. You kind of talked about that earlier. But with a mix of fear and urgency and honestly just lies, unfortunately, more people fall for them than you'd think. I've heard of recent scams coming from the IRS, police, your credit card company. I get a lot of those robocalls. We're calling from your credit card company. And I always think, well, if you're my credit card company, wouldn't you know which one it was? Um, right. so like that's my first tell, right? Like you're not saying Capital One or Chase or Bank of America. It's vague and it's vague on purpose. So, you know, the exact scheme changes all the time. That's why when we get to the prevention side in a couple minutes, you'll learn that the best practices and ways to prevent falling for these don't really change um, no matter what the scam is. 
But I've heard a few recently from listeners I think are worth sharing. And one particularly that I wanted to share, and this was something that actually was forwarded to me by a friend of a friend who was like, hey, I know that you can help her. So here's what she said. I got a call today from my husband's phone number with the police officer telling me that my husband, they knew both me and my husband's name, um, had been arrested and they are taking him to a nearby courthouse. The officer said my husband decided to call me instead of getting an attorney. So the officer's calling from her husband's cell phone. The officer gave me a case number and address for a courthouse and asked me to bring a bail bond worth $7,800. He wouldn't let me speak to my husband while telling me the details of his case and constantly insisted on not disconnecting the phone. I eventually disconnected the call and then the scam caller kept calling me again and again. The number reflecting on my screen was my husband's number or the LAPD number, which is really strange. I drove to the nearest police station and called my husband to find out everything's okay with him. My husband got a message from his cell phone provider saying that his phone had been cloned. We've reported it to the LAPD. What else can we do? Has anyone, have you experienced, you know, has anyone else like gotten this before or am I the only one? And then she also followed up and said, I got super scared by, and I felt like I was getting red flags during our conversation. Which police officer has 45 minutes to be on the phone with you without disconnecting the line and patiently holding the phone while you're picking up your son from school? Um, he asked me to use my credit card to buy bail bonds. And when I told him I don't have that kind of money on me, he said, arrange whatever you can and kind of sound pissed, which was another red flag. But I got scared and I knew something was wrong to begin with. So I think for me, the red flags are... Detectives don't call you to ask for bail bonds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone that hasn't been in the system wouldn't know that, right? Well, I mean, right. I haven't been in the system. I guess I watch a lot of crime TV, but, and I've worked with law enforcement before, so I know they're busy. They don't have time for that. That's what bail bondsmen are for. But that sense of urgency, that fear, they develop trust by having her husband's phone number. I don't know if cloned is the right word. I'm not sure if his phone was ported through the phone company or if it was just caller ID spoofed. But the fact that the phone company recognized it tells me it was probably ported and they recognized it after the fact. It doesn't matter too much on that end, though. I um, did suggest that she call the phone company and ask that they put like a extra set of security on there, like a password or extra verification out of wallet questions that aren't easily to guess. I think those are a lot of the red flags. What do you think of when you hear that scenario? Well, I think it must be the, the, the criminal's first day on the job. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think that was very sophisticated, huh? No, I don't. I mean, you read the, um, and I've gotten those same, same type of calls. My wife has gotten those same type of calls mm -hmm. with her, uh, concerning her oldest son. When I hear that or when I get that call, I'm like, and I even ask him, I'm like, is this your first day on the job? <laughs> and, and it gets him so bad. I'm like, look, this is not how you do this stuff. And the conversation he's had, so he gets upset with her mm -hmm. not being able to say Annoyed. Any, any right. for this guy. And that's, that's exactly what you don't want to do as an attacker. Mm. And I'm, I'm talking just from a criminal viewpoint here. Uh, it's fortunate that he did because it, it threw up these red flags for her. But right. more experienced people are not going to do this. Now, this tells me that this is a, a center that does this stuff in large numbers. They'll look up someone's Facebook profile, find the oldest kid, maybe the kid's in vacation in Mexico or what have you, and they'll start calling at that point. It's, it's not hard to get that information at all, uh, and you rely on numbers is all you do. So, yeah, they're hiring people. And to give you an idea, this is a business. This is not just one attacker that's doing this. This is a business. I was talking to an FBI agent last week. This guy flies over to the Ukraine. They're investigating a, uh, a business that was a business of cybercrime. It had its own office building. They had 400 employees. 
400 employees. All 400 were engaged in cybercrime. That was the business. Wow. Mm-hmm. I've and heard of that same, all over yeah. the place. Like, yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same thing with these call centers like this. That is their business. Their business right. is to defraud people, to get people to believe they're from the IRS mm-hmm. or from the law enforcement, to send bail bonds. Well, and some uh, of them don't know they're committing crimes, but others, you know, if they're in another country, they have this impression that U.S. citizens are all rich and, you know, they're bad people or, you know, they associate things with the news and think that, you know, everyone's like that and everyone has a lot of money. And so it's no big deal if they scam them. Right. It's it's that fraud triangle, though. I mean, I believe for a second that they don't know that they're breaking the law. Hmm. But what I do think is they use the idea, well, it's Americans, they're rich. I think they use that as that justification on the fraud triangle. Well, they can afford it. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess I was thinking of like the, what do they call them? Something farms, but like for Facebook ads and that kind of thing where a lot of those people don't fully understand what they're posting because it's in English. They're just like posting it and they think that's their job. But you're right. With the phone, they have to know something's up. (laughs) And they've been trained because it's a job, right? So they've they've been trained. trained. What do you do if this person says Of course they do. I mean, they've got the super, they've got the manager, you know, they'll escalate the call and everything else. It's a call center. When I see this, it's, they're not very skilled at what they're doing, but they rely on numbers. It's a numbers game for these people. Mm. Yeah, but 45 minutes on the phone, you know, and then calling up. I mean, they are persistent. Like, absolutely. They are patient to a certain extent, but. $7,800 in the U.S. might be a ton of money in their country. You know, I mean, it's still, it's a good chunk here as well, but that might be the equivalent of twenty to 30000 right? You know, they could feed their family on that for a year. And, you know, they're paying these people pounds a day. Uh, So so they're not giving them commission. Well, they may have commission, but even the commission is low, right? Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, I had a family member fall for one where somebody from overseas saying that she won the lottery and I mean she's a smart woman but at the same time she knew that she was dying and she wanted to be able to leave a better inheritance to her family and this guy called her every single day and talked to her for like hours and she was lonely and I mean for like a month they like developed this friendship and then came to the point where it was like okay well I've got all the lottery stuff you won but you just need to send some money for shipping and handling and processing and taxes, whatever. So she went to do a wire transfer at um, a large big box store and they stopped her and were like, this looks too suspicious. We don't feel comfortable. But when she got home, he was calling her wondering where his money was. And she said, oh, well, they told me it was suspicious. So I guess I can't win the lottery. And he said, oh, well, hang on. And he Googled a place that in an immigrant community that he knew wouldn't speak English, wouldn't ask questions. And he had my 86-year-old grandmother go to this, you know, dumpy place to uh, do a wire transfer to him. And she did two of them before she realized, oh, this wasn't right. And then the family contacts me to try to get the money back, (laughs) which I did know the wire transfer company that was used and, and talked to them. But at that point, it was gone. I didn't have nice things to say about their fraud prevention at the time because <laughs> they, it should have been flagged. It should have been easy. And they even said, like, oh, I'm sure we flagged it. And I said, great, then let me know where the <laughs> refund is. And I never heard back. But they were hit with significant fines for, you know, not catching fraud. I 
year or two later, I, I wasn't surprised. And so, you know, that's a side note. But those are just some examples. But like I said, like the specifics of the scam don't really matter. A lot of people ask, like, what call, what specific call should I be listening for? Okay, IRS, right? They don't call you when you owe a lot of money. They send nasty grandmothers, right? Like, okay, this one, this one. No, no, it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter what the scam is. You need to pay attention to the red flags. You mentioned some of those red flags. What are some other ones that you suggest that people watch out for the next time they get a phone call from someone that they don't know personally so that they don't fall for a phone scam? Sure. So, so the big one is the overall umbrella is to understand not to respond to any unsolicited request for personal information or mm-hmm. money. That's mm-hmm. the big one. And I basically what I mean that. is... is right, because they calls, call you. Like, wouldn't right. they know who you are? <laughs> exactly. So if someone calls you and asks for your social, if, it's come, if it looks like it's coming from the Social Security Administration, understand that caller ID doesn't mean anything. All right? It doesn't matter what the caller ID says. It's best not even look at that caller ID. (laughs) So so when someone calls you and asks for your personal information, when they say they're from some law enforcement office or bail bondsman and asks for money, whatever that is, the best thing you can do is say, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'm going to hang up the phone right now. I'm going to look up online what the real number is to your office and I'll call you back. So when you say that, they're going to try to talk you out of calling them back. No, 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 no. You can't call me back. We have to take care of this right now. If you don't take care of it right now, we're going to get a warrant. We're going to come down there and rescue you. Yep. There you go. That's your your confirmation that it's fraud, right? I've done that before. And that's like my, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's fraud, but this is the test. And I've also had like legitimate organizations or charities or whatever, who I'm like, Hey, you know what? Let me call you back. I, happy to make a donation, but I want to call you back or send me something in the mail. And the legitimate ones are like, okay, no problem. Here's our phone number. Like absolutely Absolutely. calls back. (laughs) So understand that never respond to any call, email, snail mail, whatever for personal information or money. Don't do that. Always contact the company directly, not relying on the number that's on the piece of the mail that's in the email or that's on the phone caller ID. You look up the number yourself, call them back at that number. All right. So (laughs) always insist on calling them back. If they try not to get you to call them back, it's a scam. It's a scam, period. Those calls, as Carice pointed out, those calls may come from the IRS. They may come from the police, immigration, your bank, what, your school, your doctor's office, your utility company, whatever it is, those calls may come from anywhere. Someplace you've never heard from, they'll call, they'll call from that. It doesn't matter where the call comes from. If the call is asking for personal information or money, you need to be aware of that. Right. Good, good tip. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, I think also like, you know, when they're pushy and aggressive, playing on your sense of fear, or, right. you know, on fear and sense of urgency, like, no, 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 you can't hang up. We have to do this now, like all that stuff. You know, they, they don't even want you to take time off the phone call because they know that That's you're right. going to think about it and go, wait, that seemed weird. Like they want to catch you in the moment. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you here. So talking about sending money and I was, uh, I keynoted the, uh, a conference for Toolcase in, uh, Vail, Colorado over the summer. And while I was there, they had one of the heads of fraud for Western union come in and he talked to everyone. And he said this, he said that when someone leaves the house, if a criminal can talk a person into actually, if he's wanting that person to send money, if he can get the person out of the house, there is nothing you can do at that point to keep that person from sending the money. That person will send the criminal money. And the criminals know that. If the criminal knows if he can actually get that victim to leave the house, he's going to get that money. So we understand that's exactly mm. what he's looking for you to do. And you right. As soon as you've left the house with the intention of what of transferring money, they know that they've got you. Right. Absolutely. Their hook is in your in your mouth, so to speak, so to speak, <laughs> right? They've hooked their fish. <laughs> Interesting. 
All right. So we ran out of time. No big surprise, but we planned on talking about merchant call center fraud today. We will uh, in an upcoming episode because we know it's really important for online businesses. And I think, too, it would be interesting to consumers as well who care about this stuff to know, you know, how businesses are being. Because once you know how businesses are being hit, you actually can uh, identify like, oh, okay, this is why they're doing this or why they're saying this, you know, when I call into a company or whatever. So anyway, always good to be informed, but I think we should probably wrap it up here and we'll uh, discuss the rest. Obviously, we had a lot to talk about between your trip we to did. Quantico and <laughs> scam calls and spam in general. It's just such a huge topic right now that honestly, we probably could talk about it even longer. Yeah, uh, so knowing us. The next episode, we'll just do all merchant stuff. We'll talk about merchant call center fraud, how that happens, and some examples, and how we can look to hopefully prevent it. Right. Yeah, because it's important to us to have both audiences, because we're just passionate about helping prevent fraud. And, you know, you really can't just focus on one area without the others, because they're all connected. It's one big, giant ecosystem. (laughs) All right. Well, so so that's it for our episode today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. And remember, phone fraud is a rising problem, and it's just going to continue to get worse. So knowing what to look for can help you not fall victim for these scams that are really so rampant right now. We've got so many more topics to cover to help you protect yourself and your company from fraud. So please subscribe to the online broadcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out. And please tell your friends. Rate and review where you can to help others learn about these topics as well. And we want to hear what you love so far about the podcast, how we can improve, what topics you want to hear us discuss. That was honestly why we came up with this topic was because we were hearing it from people. Let us know. Touch base with us. You can find the online broadcast on Facebook or find us individually on LinkedIn or email us at info at onlinefrogcast.com. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. 